Are you ready to bring your real estate game to the next level? My name is James Prendamano. I'm the CEO and founder of Pre-Real. And over the past 25 years, I've closed over a billion dollars in transactional real estate. Each week, I'm meeting with outstanding investors, high-performing individuals, and visionaries operating in the real estate space. These are the people that are actually out there in the real estate game right now getting it done. This podcast aims at bringing anyone's game to the next level. This is the Pre-Real Podcast. Everyone to the Pre-Real Podcast. We've got a treat for you today, folks. We've got a multifamily syndicator, podcast host, marketing consultant, unbelievable heck of a guy. We had a little uh, background chat that, that maybe we'll touch on as, as we get rolling here, but we've got John Kasman. He's the managing partner of Kasman Capital Group. John, thank you so much for taking the time out today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to talk about real estate, real estate investing and all that we got in store. So I'm excited for this. Absolutely. So uh, folks, as they, they used to say, right, when EF Hutton speaks, people listen. John's got over a hundred million dollar portfolio worth of apartments as a general partner, as a GP. Um, he's the host of the Multifamily Insights podcast and the creator or co-creator of the Midwest Real Estate Networking Summit. Uh, a hell of a resume. So we're gonna we're gonna get in the weeds here and cover some some of the traditional things, John, if we can. Um, but I'd also like to to talk a little bit about the moment in time that we happen to be in in the market. A lot of interesting mm -hmm. things happening on the horizon. Uh, before we jump in, I thought it was really interesting when we were. Uh, hoping you were going to join us on the show when we were doing our homework. You've got a heck of a marketing background, right? Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Did marketing for 15 years uh, was uh, marketing was my dream. Uh, you know, I I was a kid who uh, was undecided, you know, on, on what I wanted to study and all that stuff. No one in my family went to college. So I was the first one to really go to college. And um, over my senior year, I had a class on um, communications, I think it was. And uh, I just remember sitting in that class and there was a question asked to me uh, by uh, my, my uh, teacher. And he said, you know, why do you think we have TV and radio? Why is it free? And I was like, well, so they can communicate to us. Who is they? I had to think, I'm like, well, the government, of course. Wrong. He said, advertisers and i was like huh now again this is you know maybe 20 25 years ago so this is a time we had free tv free radio right so when you think about that programming what's well, like well someone's paying for it right it's going out to all these people for free because the people who are paying for it are the advertisers and that took me down this rabbit hole of learning about public relations and marketing and communications and crafting a narrative and all of these different things and why it's important to have a voice and why it's important to have representation of that voice because otherwise other people get to craft this narrative and you don't get a chance to really understand that so um, that got me into the space so i was in love with it loves marketing loves learning about products and services and how to convey the right benefits to the right people at the right time. And I did that for, you know, companies like General Motors, Nike, Coors Light, Mountain Dew, and other big brands like that. But the challenge was, um, I realized in the corporate world, I couldn't, 
I couldn't dictate what my career was going to be. You know, it didn't matter how good I was. Someone else always had a say on who got that promotion. I remember in particular, um, my boss um, ran into some issues and they, they were going to move him out of that role and they wanted to promote me, but I was actually two levels uh, beneath the, the level of that job because of where they hired me. So they couldn't promote me because I would have had to jump up two levels. So instead they brought in someone else and I was running circles around this person in that the marketing space. And it frustrated me so much. And I finally went to my boss and said, you wanted to give me this job. I get it. You couldn't give it to me, but now I'm not even learning or growing. I feel like I'm, you know, I'm basically teaching my boss how to do their job. And it just, it made me step back too, because I learned a lot about corporate and how to navigate that. And she actually built a great relationship after that and realized like she was not trying to hold me back, but I did. Honestly, I felt like she was at that moment. Cause I'm like, in my head, she had the seat I wanted. And it's like, she's like, John, I don't want the seat, but we need to work together so I can keep the seat warm <laughs> so you could take it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, uh, but yeah, I, I enjoyed marketing, but I also got to a point where I realized being in corporate, no matter how much you enjoy it, um, it didn't align with my real life goals. And for me, my real life goals are more about being a present father. Um, and that was top of the list. And I had to kind of make some changes in order for me to really fulfill that portion of what I was looking to get out of life. You know, the, the marketing background, um, the real estate industry has changed so much that uh, one of the core principles here in, in my company is you, you've got to be a marketer today as well as a deal maker. It's not enough anymore to be an outstanding deal maker. You got to be able to market yourself. And when you can market yourself and you believe in yourself and you believe in the product, man, oh man, sky's the limit. Really, truly, sky's the limit. You can't fake it. But when you have that skill set and you learn how to market in today's world, there's, there's not much you can't do. So, uh, so, how do we go from that point to $100 million? portfolio as a GP in, in multifamilies. What, what was the first step? Talk to me about that. Yeah. I mean, so, so everything we just talked about was marketing, right. And I, I believed in the training I had done up to that point, right. I was, I was in the New York times at one point, I was in black enterprise magazine as was one of the top advertising and marketing um, um, uh, uh, professionals. So I had a lot of confidence and a track record in the marketing world, real estate, whole other story, right? So real estate, I started brick by brick, man. I started with a duplex and that was more of a necessity. So we lived in one unit, we rented out the other unit. Then we bought a three unit building. So, you know, this is now we're going to, we're going to push this some more, our first true rental property, right? Now we got a three unit and I surrounded myself with other people. And that's really one of my biggest hacks. Surround yourself with people who are doing whatever it is you want to do. Um, they don't have to be your best friends. I'm not, not saying replace your friends, but I am saying you need to make sure you have a safe space around these people so that you can feel, you know, uh, nourished in the the vision of what you're trying to create. Because if you're the only person in your friend group who's looking to invest in real estate or or do something that other folks aren't trying to do, you might start to question yourself. Man, maybe this is riskier than I thought, or maybe this, you know, maybe this this isn't the right way, or maybe I'm 
maybe I'm overthinking this, or maybe I'm too optimistic here. So you've got to surround yourself with people who are actually doing this so that you can get that affirmation of, hey, you know what? No, you're actually doing great. Or this is exactly how I did it. Or you know what? I talked to my mom. She told me I was going to lose everything and be homeless and move in with her, whatever, right? Figure out who are those people just to get that gut check and that pat on the back to say you're on the right path. You know, and that was critical for me. So I got that once a month. I used to go to a, a RIA, so a real estate investment association group. And it was like 45 minutes away from us. It was out in the Chicago suburbs. So I had to go all the way out there for this. But I went because it's how I got my confidence and kept my confidence high. Um, but doing that, I also met a young lady who was, she did her own meetup. So I started going to her meetup as well. And I watched her go from a three unit property to a nine unit property to a 90 unit portfolio, all within about 18 months. And when she went from the three to nine, it showed me this was possible because this is the first real person I met who was actually growing a portfolio. You know, I've met a couple people who had a property, but I've actually up to that point, I didn't know anyone who was growing their portfolio because it's just not something people openly talk about. Right. And yep. at that time, you know, there's social media, obviously, but you know, Facebook was fairly new still people are using it, but it's, it's not like now where your grandma's on Facebook. Right. So you just didn't know. And just knowing this person who was growing a portfolio, it made it real to me and it made it tangible. It wasn't just these people in the books. It wasn't just these random people on a podcast. It wasn't just these random avatars on some, you know, uh, bigger pockets or some other forum. This was a real life person who I, I talked to six months ago and she told me, you know, about her three unit and the concerns she had and the challenges she was facing and boom, now she's got nine and boom, now she's got 90. And I'm like, wait a minute, from nine to 15 might make sense, nine to 20, maybe nine to 90. And I said, can I buy you breakfast? I just, I just need to understand how you did it. And she's the first person who really helped me understand what it means or what it's like to work with other investors. I obviously had thought about that or knew about that, but I hadn't really considered it for myself. And she made me think about that in a way that I had never even considered before. I had never thought about raising a dollar for real estate before. I thought you went out there, you saved your money, you bought what you could buy with the money in your bank account. And that's what we were doing. And having people like that in your network, it helps you expand what's possible. And that's why I say you have to surround yourself with the right people because it changes what you see. And then I can take that and then I can look back at the experiences I had in corporate America and the wins I had. And sometimes you just got to you just got to give yourself a pep talk. You know, we forget how great we are. You know, we always want to be humble and all of that. And that's cool. But sometimes you need to pull out that resume and remind yourself who you are, what you can do and what you can accomplish. So you can shoot for the moon and not just play small. You playing small helps nobody. Right. So you have to understand that if me having that reassurance from someone, someone telling me how to do it, telling me how other people and they, their network have done it, that opened the door. And what literally happened next is about 30 days after that meeting, I met the person who became my mentor and my mentor ended up growing a crazy portfolio. He's got like a $2 billion portfolio right now. Um, probably like two and a half billion at this point, but uh, he grew that. And then this is now another person, in my network. Well, I'm watching this person grow from a $7 million portfolio, from seven to 20, 20 to 30, 30 to 60. And it's like, wait a minute, what, what, what are you doing? Huh? 
So what is this syndication? How, how does this stuff work? So now these are the people I'm surrounding myself with. So when these are your friends and these are the people you're working with, you expand. So for me on a tactical level, what happened is I learned about apartment syndication, working with other investors. And a lot of apartment syndication is finding a good deal, being able to operate it, but also being able to raise and attract capital for these deals. And that's really where some of the marketing background was able to come into play to help me be uh, effective and successful there. Multifamily investing um, as a GP, which is where you're, you're operating, is, uh, is a complicated um, and a competitive space, right? So, uh, and it's not for everybody. You know, the, you, you, you see quite often people on social media talking about how they've traded in their nine to five and now they're, you know, doing whatever it is that they're doing. Um, and it doesn't quite go that way. You, you, being aligned with the right GP is everything if you're going to be a passive investor. So I was wondering if you could spend a few minutes, John, talking about uh, some of the nuts and bolts of how you're, you're identifying deals. Uh, what are the metrics you're looking for? Is it straight cap rate return? Are you looking for upside? You know, what, what hits the sweet spot for, for John? Yeah, our philosophy has not changed and probably will, will not change very much, but we look for uh, value-add deals, right? When I say value-add, what I mean is we're looking for properties that are already making money where we can come in with our business plan. That might include renovating some units or lowering expenses or adding some amenities. But with our business plan, we can generate more profits. And based on those things, we can deliver a solid return for our investors, usually looking to double investors return over the course of five to seven years. So we are typically taking a longer view, you know, five to seven year hold. If we can exit earlier, we certainly will consider that. But we tell everybody all the time, plan on being in a little bit longer. These are illiquid assets, which means you can't come in, invest, and then four months later decide you want to buy something completely different. You need your money back. It just doesn't work that way. So for us, we like stability. We like predictability. Uh, and this is where really my background in corporate America comes in handy, right? We do a lot of sales charts, a lot of financial projections, a lot of, hey, here's what we're on the trajectory to hit this month or for this quarter. How do we adjust it or what sales can we implement or whatever the case may be? And that's really what a lot of this is. We're taking a look at it. We're looking at what the current financials are. Okay, if we change X, Y, Z, or we did this, this, and this, here's where we think we can get the revenues or here's where we can get the net operating income. And based on that, the property would be worth this. And then we want to build in kind of our um, conservative approach. So what if we're wrong? What if we're wrong up? What if we're wrong down? How do we make sure we put some cushion in there so we can protect ourselves and protect our investors? Uh, we like B-class properties. And by B-class, what I really mean are good properties that are in demand. These aren't necessarily luxury, class A, beautiful, high-end um, apartments, uh, but they're also not you know, really rough, beat up, tough neighborhood apartments either. We like affordable places where people want to live, where they can't live, decent to good schools, nice amenities, good attractive location, accessible to other places, places where people want to rent or can rent are, are happy to rent. You don't want to be in a place where people, you know, the only people who are going to rent there are people who have no other options, right? Because what does that mean for us as investors? Well, these are the people we can rent to. So everything now has to be based on cost and being cheap, uh, as opposed to creating a, a comforting home where someone can be proud about where they live. On the flip side, we're not developers. We're not doing 
you know, class A luxury, super nice, everything. Um, we just don't know if those people always want to rent. Some of them choose to rent right now, but the market changes. There's a lot of competition from other developers, but that B class space, that B class space is nice because you have the, the widest range of potential renters. And if you're thinking about it from single family, think about if you are a flipper, you want to flip kind of the house that is the bread and butter of a city or a neighborhood. Uh, when I flipped, I was a terrible flipper, by the way. Um, but when we flipped, we were set in the market with our flips. That was a terrible strategy because we were the first ones to find out the market uh, had softened up, right? But if you've got that bread and butter product, you have the widest range of potential buyers. So you can, you know how to navigate it, you know what to do, you know what levers to pull, you know what range to stay in. Um, and that's the way we think about it for B-class B apartments, right? Let's take out some of the mystery. Let's not assume that we are, you know, the greatest developers and, you know, rehabbers in the world. Let's give ourselves some cushion. Let's mitigate some of those risks and have a product that the masses are able to take on. And if we can do that, that we give ourselves a lot of chances to to be correct. Yeah, no, no doubt. Meat, meat and potato investing, I love it. it it's uh, always proven for me, being through three full economic cycles now, uh, to be steady Freddie, baby. And in real estate, that's the name of the game. So uh, geographically, are you investing in, you know, across the country? You know, what, what, what is the focus for you? Yeah, we like growing parts of the Midwest and the Southeast region. So we do like to pay attention to population growth, uh, industries that are diverse, as well as kind of the political climate, less about, you know, red and blue states and more just ease of doing business. Um, what are the landlord laws? Is it, you know, landlord tenant friendly? Just trying to understand some of those things. Why? Because we want to make projections. You know, sure. we want to be able to understand how our business is going to operate in that particular market. Our new business is gonna set up shop. Do new businesses want to grow their existing businesses there? Would they wanna add employees? Will they attract more people to the area? But we're always trying to look at demand. You know, Where's demand at today and where's demand heading? So to that end, uh, 10, 15 years ago, political uh, threats in your analysis were almost, never accounted for. Um, those legislative threats now uh, are, they come up just about with everybody I, I speak with. Uh, that's a really important piece of weighing the potential and determining growth in the markets. Uh, I'm curious with, there's this confluence of so many factors now, right? There's decentralizations of some of the cities um, and there, there seems to be a buy-in from corporate America for the first time that remote working and not being in the office, um, which was, it, it's so funny that, that some of the, the younger uh, folks that work with me don't understand how frowned upon that was not too long ago, right? It just wasn't an option. Just a few years ago. Yeah, yeah you, you were in six days, sometimes seven days a week. And, and you had, as you had said earlier, you know, you, you put in the grind and you kind of climb the ladder and that was it. Now it seems that corporate America is starting to embrace this and say, hey, we can cut salaries. We can really slash expenses uh, and decentralize. And I'm seeing a lot of companies now opt for um, trading in those super expensive digs, you know, in, in Midtown 
uh, and locating in outer boroughs and, and beyond. These markets as the, look, look this is a cycle and, and it never ceases to amaze me how people forget that this is a cycle. It's gonna go up, it's gonna come down, it's gonna go back up again. Um, Typically, in these secondary markets, these tertiary markets, they're the first to get hit with the luxury, right? Those are the first markets where uh, last go around Florida in 2008, you know, it was red hot one day. And then for two years, you couldn't give something away. Uh, I'm wondering what your insight is. What's your perspective now? Has there been enough decentralization? Um, is there enough of a shift now in people's habits where those secondary markets have now become primary markets? Is that what we're seeing here? Well, I, I think everyone's got to look at the factors they look for uh, and make that determination. For, for us, you know, we think about primary, secondary, and tertiary. Typically, people are looking at population and MSAs to help make those decisions. Um, it's funny because from a multifamily standpoint, if you ask me like the top multifamily market, for my peers, I would tell you it's DFW. Uh, if you look at population, you know, DFW should technically be a secondary market. So it just kind of depends on how you want to look at it. Here, here's what I would say, though, to answer your question. Everything is cyclical and you have to understand the different levers that impact. Uh, for us, we're always looking at rent and rent growth. So rent is going to be a reflection of demand. It's going to be a reflection of occupancy. Uh, it's going to be a reflection of something that they call uh, absorption rate, which is essentially where they're building new apartment buildings. Well, how quickly do they get rented? You know, are they building enough apartment buildings? Are they overbuilding the apartment buildings? Are they underbuilding apartment buildings? So that absorption rate lets us understand, you know, where they're at in that development cycle. So when you get into some of these secondary and tertiary markets where they're not building very much, you're not as exposed because the demand is so high. So the key for us is paying attention to the underlying metrics, not necessarily just the results, right? Uh, if you only look at rent and rent growth, you can make some big mistakes. I'll take a look at a market like Phoenix, Arizona. And Phoenix is one where I've talked to some folks who are active in Phoenix. It's one that I don't know as well, but I'll tell you when I looked at the historicals, it's a market and a lot of West Coast markets do this. They're very cyclical. You know, when the market's up, they are hot, they're exploding, double-digit growth, on fire. But when the market goes down, they plunge, and they take a hit, and they take a while to recover. And that's one thing just to to look at. And again, I'm not picking on Phoenix. I don't know the markets. And what I, what I have talked to people about is what's driving Phoenix right now is more fundamental growth because you have jobs and employers moving there. So I do think it'll be more sustained. Um, but those are the things you want to look at. I want to look beneath the numbers. Don't just look at population growth and rent growth and say, oh, okay, cool. This market grew 12%. Let's go there. Why is it growing 12%? Is that continuing to happen? Uh, I might look if it's, let's say it's job growth, right? Let's say there's a couple of big employers, Amazon's moving shop. All right, go read Amazon's report, their quarterly reports. What's going on in the business? Are they planning on opening up more locations there, more warehouses, more facilities? You know, or are they cutting back? You know, did they have a surplus? Did they beat their estimates or expectations? Or did they did they come up a little short and they're a little surprised that things softened up? I want to understand, again, am I expecting these things to continue 
or am I going to expect change? And I'm also not trying to do this quarterly because when we're investing, we're going to be in for what, five to seven years. Mm -hmm. So I need to pick something that's fairly stable. I don't want something that's hot, you know, today or these last two quarters, but stunk it up last year, right? I want something that is on a nice, steady growth metric. And for the foreseeable future, the underlying metrics that are driving that growth should continue to be there and should continue to drive it. So that's what I'm looking for. I try not to get too caught up in the cycles of it. And that's why I like multifamily. That's the reason I'm not really in office and some of these other things. It's not that I don't, don't like them. It's just that there are a lot of other factors that come into play and maybe, you know, understanding whether or not the time is right is there. With multifamily, it's really straightforward. We have a shortage of housing. It won't get fixed till at least 2030. And uh, most people need a place to live. In a rising interest rate environment, you're going to have less homeowners and home buyers. What are they going to do? They're going to rent. Rents are going up all across this country. There, It's almost impossible to build affordable housing without government support. So you're not building apartment buildings and then renting them out for $600. It's not happening. So there's plenty of opportunity in many markets. That doesn't mean that you can't have good underlying fundamentals driving your decisions, though. I love it. So uh, before I let you go, can you speak a little bit about the capital markets? What's the strategy uh, been and, and has it evolved with securing debt in these transactions? You know, what does that look like for you now? Yeah, I tell everybody, you know, the loan should match the business plan. So what are you trying to do for the property? Get a loan that matches the business plan. If it's a value-add deal, when do you plan on exiting? Make sure that the loan you have gives you flexibility to exit at that time, but also doesn't force you to exit prematurely. So there's an interesting balance there that someone has to figure out to select a loan. Uh, I hear arguments all the time about fixed versus, you know, variable financing, bridge loans versus agency loans or versus, you know, um, uh, other bank loans and stuff like that right now. I, I think it comes down to the business plan. You know, what state is a property in? Is it a light value add? Is it a heavy value add? You know, what are you actually doing? What market are you in? There are a lot of different variables there that you have to come into play. Um, for me, I would say that we are always looking at mitigating risk as much as we can while also getting the right loan for the right business plan on that property. Uh, I love it. John, what's the best way for folks to, to find you? You know, the best thing really is uh, I'm on LinkedIn, so you can connect with me on LinkedIn. The other thing is we have a sample deal package on our website. So if you're curious about apartment investing, whether you want to be in the active side or you just want to be passive and put your money to work, uh, it's a good way to wrap your head around some of the terms, you know, the way the deal structure is, just some of the things you should be looking for. And you can check that out at kasmancapital.com slash sample deal. Uh, I love it. I think the... You know, when, when selecting GPs, folks, and we look at those cut sheets and those decks, right? Uh, I always remind people that those decks are made to look a certain way for a reason, right? Like I've never seen a deck ever that didn't work, and there's a reason for that. Yet at the end of the day, a lot of them don't work. This is invaluable insight. Um, I, I love what you got going on, John. Best of luck. And can I can I throw one, one thing in before we wrap? Because I, I think that's a really good point. One question that I, I think every passive investor should ask, and quite frankly, any investor who's looking to partner with someone else or even hire um, contractors or other potential partners, ask someone about a deal that did not work out, okay? 
and you can even say did not work as planned. But the reason you want to do that is to your point, we all have nice slick marketing packages. I'm a marketing guy, I get it. Um, but to really understand someone and their character and how they operate and what they've learned, you have to ask about some of the challenges. And I could, I don't care quite as much about the fact that there's a deal that didn't work out. What I'm listening for is how this person talks about it. You know, do they take ownership? Did they learn from it? Did they grow from it? Are they in this deal right now? Or was this 10 years ago? Uh, I'm trying to understand and learn a little bit about who this person is based on that experience. And what I'm really looking for is someone who is accountable. I'm looking for a leader. I'm looking for someone who is going to help lead through whatever situations we may come up with. That's me as a, as a GP. If I'm part of another operator, I want to hear that somebody who's going to roll their sleeves, get in the trenches, be accountable. Hey guys, we didn't, we didn't account for this. This thing happened. Uh, try to fix it right now. Here's what we're going to do. I want that person, right? I don't want the guy who's going to point the finger and say, well, John, you were supposed to do this. Huh? Right. Even if I was, I, I'd rather have the person who says, Hey, you know what? This got missed. Here's let's try to figure out a solution so we can fix it. Uh, Those are the people you want to partner with, right? So I would ask that because you are going to be in partnership with these people for again five to seven years on our deals. So you want to make sure you're partnering with the right people who at least will do everything they can to solve the situation. And uh, I think for vendor selection partners, anybody in your business, I just think that's a great way to start to get a sense of the character of the people. And all I'm looking for is this person accountable for their role and what they could have done or do they just blame that contractor who did xyz well who hired that contractor right i mean at some point you still got to take on that ultimate responsibility and uh, whether it's you know extreme ownership and that kind of mentality but the reality is, is i want someone who i feel i'm going to be able to trust to to do well as a partner as opposed to you know just blindly hoping this person knows what they're doing yeah, no, no question about it. That's a brilliant point. And, and I don't care who you are. We've all had deals in real estate that don't go as scripted. That's what makes exceptional uh, investment partners. That's what makes exceptional deal makers is we're problem solvers at our core. And if you can't take accountability for the problem, you're not looking for the solution. We've all had them. And, and to John's point, those that take ownership, uh, for it and demonstrate leadership. That's who you want leading you out of it because it's just, it's all about solving problems. We've all had them and that's what separates the great operators from the not so great operators. So great, great point, John. I really appreciate the time today. John Kasman, uh, managing partner, Kasman Capital Group. Tremendous, tremendous. All the best uh, of luck to you as you continue forward. Really enjoyed our time together today, John. Best of luck. Thank you. Take care. Appreciate your time as well. Absolutely. As always, everyone out there, please stay safe.